In a letter at the end of his life, between a dissection of the difference between form and forms, Jefferson explained to Martin Van Buren, then future vice president with Jackson and the president himself, how the translation of the Mazay letters in 1796 had been a misrepresentation of my political principles in those early days in American governance. He notes that Washington understood what he meant in the letter about an Anglican, monarchical, and aristocratical party which had sprung up, which states their object to be to draw over us the substance, as they had already done the forms of the British government. Now the forms here meant were the levies, birthdays, the pompous cavalcade to the state house on a meeting of Congress, the formal speech from the throne, the procession of Congress in a body to re-echo the speech and an answer, etc., etc., he writes that when he joined the Washington administration, he said to the man himself that the norms being established were, quote, not at all in character with the simplicity of Republican government and looking as if wishfully to those of European courts, end quote. For Jefferson, part of this simplicity was delivering this annual State of the Union address in writing, then read by a clerk to avoid the bad vibes of the speech from the throne, a mainstay of monarchies of this era. This tradition of written addresses began in 1801 and would continue until Woodrow Wilson took the podium in 1913. Alexander Hamilton would call Jefferson's second state of the Union a lullaby, but we'll blame the author, not the man who delivered the speech in Jefferson's stead. Unlike 1801, there were no cover letters for the presiding officers. In this case, in Aaron Burr's absence, we have Stephen R. Bradley presiding, John Dawson, Thomas Lowndes, and John P. Van Ness from the House, and Robert Wright and Theodore Foster from the Senate. There was just a declaration recorded by the Speaker of the House, Nathaniel Macon, on December 15, 1802, from Meriwether Lewis, quote, I am directed by the President of the United States to hand you a communication in writing from the President to the two Houses of Congress, end quote. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark where we explore the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere. Social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, episode Jefferson's Confidential Letter to Congress. But we're not here to talk about what is in Jefferson's State of the Union Address. Jefferson's section headlines from his fair copy weren't included in the speech, but give us an overview. Discriminating duties, British countervail, seamen, and Tripoli deal with international affairs. Louisiana anticipates changes since the cession of the Spanish province of Louisiana to France. Georgia and Mississippi Territory notes the cession of Georgia's land claims to the West and, with it, spurious speculative titles that had been taken from Native peoples, specifically the Choctaw. Indiana alludes to a survey done by Thomas Freeman in that territory that would be used in imminent treaties, notably in Vincennes and Grassland. Finance, internal taxes, reloans, and estimates mark the financial state of the Union. War Department, militia, anticipate no changes in military structure while Navy and dry dock do. But what's been left out? Like most speeches, this one was not created in a vacuum. Jefferson sent his cabinet copies of the address with requests for feedback. Jefferson sent Madison a copy on November 18, 1802, asking him to give it, quote, a serious perusal and make such connections in matter and manner as it needs 
and that without reserve and with as little delay as possible. End quote. Albert Gallatin was next on the 19th, quote, revise both as to substance and form, and to favor him with his amendments and strictures freely inhibited, freely inhibited, underlined. Dearborn would be pleased to examine the enclosed with rigor and suggest any alterations he would think for the better on the 22nd. Robert Smith's request isn't found, but he replied on or before the 25th, the same day the letter was endorsed by Levi Lincoln from Jefferson, asking for scrupulous examination. He received a reply from everyone but Madison. Both Gallatin and Smith commented on the foreign seamen, but this being an immediate issue with seamen in Norfolk when Jefferson drafted the address, it was excised for now. Gallatin and Lincoln both point out waffling language. Gallatin reinforces the right to wage war against an aggressor and certain aspects of George's land session. Lincoln was cleaning up phrases like, becomes a measure of urgency as well as justice, for becomes a desirable measure. Lincoln also warns against the feelings of the great capaciousness of the opposition, i.e. Federalists, and suggests removing words like false, quote, for one more palatable to the minority, end quote. Gallatin and Dearborn hint at matters of dubious importance to be pared down, such as the Wabash Salt Springs, as it might awaken ideas of a salt tax, or to be amplified, such as the establishment of a magazine and armory in South Carolina, for Dearborn along with Gallatin wondering where's the mention of trading houses or Ohio's admission into the Union. However, to Albert Gallatin, Louisiana was the most delicate part of the speech, and if mentioned, should place the taking possession by the French on hypothetical ground. Jefferson would mention Louisiana in the address, but when it came to the Missouri, the draft contemplates an expedition out of our own territory and suggests it being a proper object for a confidential message echoed by Robert Smith. But confidentiality cut both ways. After Jefferson's annual message, Congress asked for more information, quote, to the violation on the part of Spain of the Treaty of Friendship, Limits, and Navigation between the United States of America and the King of Spain, end quote. On December 30th, 1802, Jefferson sent a confidential letter, which kicks off closed debates on Spain's cession of Louisiana to France and navigation on the Mississippi. The House passes a resolution on the Mississippi on January 7th. On January 11th, the Senate receives word nominating Robert Livingston and James Monroe to parley with the First Consul of France, Napoleon Bonaparte, quote, for the purpose of enlarging and more effectively securing our right and interest in the River Mississippi and in the territories eastward thereof, end quote. This, of course, included New Orleans. It was only a week ago that the city and its ports were once again closed to Americans. Jefferson wrote John Wales Epps that, quote, the shutting up of the port of New Orleans, which gave alarm at first, turns out to have been an unauthorized freak of the attendant, which will probably be corrected before any inconveniences arise from it, end quote. If one doesn't consider the inconvenience of its sale to America, Jefferson was right. Commerce continued as Congress debated how to open the Mississippi and New Orleans for good. Livingston and Monroe were approved the following day, along with an appropriation from the House of $2 million to purchase Louisiana. Both houses discussed and passed the appropriation in secret sessions, writes Gerhard Casper. Quote, Indeed, secret expenditures for vaguely stated purposes and secret communications have been part of the government practice since the first Congress of the United States. The framers assumed, as indicated by the Journal Secrecy Clause of the Constitution, that the American people would sometimes benefit from secrecy, 
end quote. Embracing this notion during the Louisiana negotiations, Jefferson supposedly told Senator Plummer, a Federalist from New Hampshire, that a great point had now been gained, a new precedent established in our government, the passage of an important law by Congress in secret session. This tendency of the federal government worked just fine for Jefferson. His biographer Paul Sandoval wrote of the man, quote, secrecy was his strategy and his predilection, end quote. On January 18th, Jefferson sent a confidential letter to Congress. He leads with a wallop, quote, Indian tribes residing within the lands of the United States have for a considerable time been growing more and more uneasy at the constant diminution of the territory they occupy, end quote. Bemoaning that they've uniformly been, quote, resisting absolutely all further sale on any conditions, end quote, how can the United States extort native lands? Like clockwork, Jefferson advocates encouraging them to cease hunting in favor of agriculture, as well as multiplying trading houses further west, locating them, quote, within their reach those things which will contribute more to their domestic comfort than the possession of extensive but uncultivated wilds, end quote. He provides an aerial view of what lands the United States now possesses, steering Congress towards the extensive river systems that they might soon possess, noting gravely, quote, the portion of their country most important for us is exactly that which they do not inhabit, end quote. Speaking of those lands, Jefferson teases the commercial prospects of the Mississippi and the Missouri. He even mentions the possibility of a single portage to the Western Ocean, mentioning familiar rivers through which we could connect the continent, like the Wabash, the Ohio, Susquehanna, Potomac, Savannah, the James. His geographic training and expeditious mind carried into explaining what he's taken years to know. Quote, an intelligent officer with 10 or 12 men, fit for the enterprise and willing to undertake it, taken from our posts where they may be spared without inconvenience, might explore the whole line, even to the Western Ocean, have conferences with the natives on the subject of commercial intercourse, get admission among them for our traders as others are admitted, agree on convenient deposits for an interchange of articles, and return with the information acquired in the course of two summers. Their arms and accoutrements, some instruments of observation, and light and cheap presents for the Indians would be all the apparatus they could carry, and with the expectation of a soldier's portion of land on their return, would constitute the whole expense." End quote. Jefferson closes by ceding commercial authority to Congress, but can't help but mentioning the geographical and literary merits of the expedition. If they were wondering where the price tag was, quote, the appropriation of $2,500 for the purpose of extending the external commerce of the United States, while understood and considered by the executive as giving the legislative sanction, would cover the undertaking from notice and prevent the obstructions which interested individuals might otherwise previously prepare in its way. End quote. Donald Jackson asked, quote, If the Spanish, French, and British knew of the plan, and if Congress had provided the money, and if the expedition was truly constitutional, as described by Jefferson, then why all the secrecy? For him, it comes down to the same reasons Levi Lincoln suggested rephrasing some of his annual address. Political opposition to Western exploration. A bitterness that knows no enemy except the opposition of everything proposed by Jefferson and his administration. Quote, Imposing on the public mind and producing excitements, every measure originating with the executive will be attacked with a virulence in proportion to the patriotism of the motive, the wisdom of the means, and the probable utility of its execution. End quote. 
Even after Meriwether Lewis set off for the West, Jefferson clung to the lie that he was headed up the Mississippi River longer than plausible, but no one was buying. Even before Lewis wrote to Clark to invite him on the journey, William had already heard the rumors of Louisiana and of the sort of expedition that Jefferson was proposing. Another excellent question is, why now? As we've established, it's fair to say that Jefferson never let the idea of Western exploration go. And it certainly is serendipitous that George Rogers Clark would correspond with Jefferson just prior to the writing of the annual address to reiterate that his dreams of Western exploration were over, but don't forget that I had a perfectly capable brother. However, we know that these plans were drafted at least a month before. The timing of George Rogers Clark's correspondence was what it was. More plausible in our timeline is a man that we'll meet soon enough. In August of 1801, Jefferson hosted botanist Benjamin Smith Barton. He was collecting plants, botanizing, as Michelle would say, through the Shenandoah Valley, through Warm Springs, Lexington, Staunton, and finally to Charlottesville in Monticello. Details of his adventures in the mountains rekindle some desire in Jefferson? Did the two friends talk about Andre Michaud, as both of them were sponsors of his expedition through the American Philosophical Society? Did Jefferson remember that in choosing Michaud, they had let down another, a much younger, too young, Meriwether Lewis? Perhaps Jefferson sat on all of that over the summer before offering at some point the job of a lifetime to an older, more experienced Meriwether Lewis. From the vantage point of 220 years, one can get lost in David Lavender's summary of the $2,500 seed money that would become the core of discovery. Quote, the moment Congress agreed to send a cohesive body of American troops, however small, into the ambiguously held lands beyond the Mississippi, possibilities multiplied. An American West, fantasy's new garden of Hesperides, where sturdy yeomen would hold true to Jefferson's vision of democracy. Scientific inquiry, the range of wonders that could be found would set the American Philosophical Society on fire. Commerce, not only in the interior of the continent, but also with busy ports at the far end of some western river. The fabled passage to India, dreamed of ever since the unexpected land barriers of the New World had frustrated Columbus. All this Jefferson had contemplated for years without making an overt move. Now the time had arrived. Lewis, the expeditor, must have shared the excitement of these almost boundless expectations." End quote. However, when Lewis ended Jefferson's annual address, all of that laid uncertainly in the future. In the meantime, did he linger after the speech was through? Did he wipe sweat off of his brow, or was he used to the temporary chamber being referred to as the oven? Did he return handshakes with friends, trade gossip and news, not realizing how momentous the following weeks would be, or that the bill would be passed without even a roll call vote? Did he get swarmed by partisans and or enemies asking to relay a message, good or ill, to the president? Or was this old hat by this point, as he had delivered addresses ranging from Bonaparte's ratification of the Convention of 1800, to George's meeting with the Cherokees, Chickasaws, Choctaws, and Creeks, to Western Indian trading houses, to treaties and expenditures, to endless nominations for open government offices. In fact, he would be back to update the Senate by the end of this year on the Holland Company's land grab with the Seneca in Western New York. And when he finally left the building, did he walk directly home? 
to his and Jefferson's, to the president's house? And did he walk alone or was he with friends? And when he did arrive, did Jefferson ask him how it all went? How the speech was received? How he had done? Did they have dinner that night? Was it quiet that night, like two mice in a church? Did Lewis sit on the edge of his bed that night in the future East Room of the White House and think about the future? Or did he glance over at the comically large 1,200-pound cheese wheel that had arrived nearly a year ago from the well-wishers of Cheshire, Massachusetts, and wonder if he'd be there a year from now, still carving away, or along the wide Missouri, rocking and rolling into the unknown? ¶¶